Steve, happy Friday. It is a new month, May 1st. Yeah, freaking crazy, man. April went by uh, fast, considering it was mostly in quarantine. (laughs) (laughs) It did go by fast, man. What is the is the first of the month and the last TSS episode? That's either uh, maybe bad news or good news if people are sick of hearing our voices. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Basically, plan on the next Monday getting back to just kind of normal ish operations at EXO. Uh, the governor kind of laid out a. I was fairly impressed with it. Our governor laid out like a plan for the next all the way through the end of June, and it basically is like two week stages of. Okay, at this point, if coronavirus COVID cases stay flat or decline, we'll reopen it. You know, certain businesses here can reopen and events can open here. And it's laid out fairly well. Um, so, yeah, basically we can uh, return back to work, especially the nature of our business um, where it's not, uh, you know, a restaurant where people gather. Right. Just a few, few customers walk in here and there. So get back to uh, regular ish life. It's going to be. um I don't know. Interesting. What's your kind of uh, overarching thoughts on the future and coronavirus? Man, I don't know. It's still a lot of uncertainty. And I, you know, Missouri, we're basically in a similar timeline. They're letting some of the um, restrictions expire. Um, some businesses starting to open back up Monday. So it sounds like a very similar situation. Um, it's still just one of those things when it's, there's lots of question marks on other things, right? Like, trips uh that we had planned for the summer that it's like can you travel then can you when can we fly there's all kinds of you know unknowns still but it is nice to um see some light at the end of the tunnel even if there's some tunnel left of quote-unquote back to normal and i don't know you know what normal looks like and if we will go back to a um a pre-coronavirus full normal anytime soon i mean there's just going to be so many uh different not only restrictions, but personal behaviors, I think, that there's going to be obviously lasting effects from this for, for quite a while. It'll be interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I think my kind of, um, you know, overall, obviously, if you've been listening to the TSS early on, I looked at all the all the data I could possibly look at, you know, and basically concluded that I need to take it serious. We don't, there's just, you don't know enough. If you were sitting there going, oh, this is uh, you know, this is all fake. It's a hoax. Like, yeah, you were full of it. Like you did. Nobody knew that. Um, and, and I knew, and I, I said early on, took the decision, like I'd rather look back and basically where I'm at now I've go, you know, it probably did too much than, than not doing enough and, and regret it. So, um, but yeah, as it's, um, as it's drawn out, you know, my kind of current take is this is like a, it's just a new danger that we're going to have to live with in our lives. It's, it's like a new cancer. Um, you know what I mean? It's, uh, uh, you and I kind of talked about this, I think a couple, uh, a couple of weeks ago of you and your daughter are supposed to come out here late June and do a little vacation. And, you know, I think it's like, you're just going to uh, fly with some accepted risk, right? Like you get into your car, uh, and you live in a busy city and, and just tr- crazy drivers everywhere. Every time you get in your car, you're accepting the risk that, you know, some crazy driver could run into the side of you or whatever. I think that's the new, uh, just how this is going to be for the next couple of years. Uh, it doesn't sound like a, even if a vaccine comes, right, it's like the flu vaccine. It's not guaranteed to knock it down. It can modify and change and there's going to be flare ups of this. So it's just a new, it's a, a new risk that everyone in the world has uh, inherited here and just going to have to get used to it, you know, so. 
And I think I think we will. They're learning more about the dangers, and they're going to have uh, treatments, medical treatments that are going to help speed it up and, and reduce the people that uh, pass away from it. Um, but it's still just it's going to be out there, and maybe uh, uh, wash your hands more often. I know, like I've <laughs> I've never put so much lotion on my hands uh, in the last month and probably my entire life because they're just constantly dry and cracked. But you know, um, just uh, a new way of living for a while. I don't think, yeah, I don't think it's going away, right? I don't think in two years you're going to see zero coronavirus cases. But it is interesting how, um, you know, it's funny just how how influential like reporting and the news is. Um, if you think about how, uh, obviously this is, it's big and new, but there's you know no one talks about heart disease and cancer and car crashes and suicides and all these things kill more people than coronavirus has to date, but it's never, uh, you know, they don't shut down the world and it's kind of an interesting, obviously this is a different scenario, but it is, it is interesting just how influential, like if the news is talking about it, it's, it's in front of everybody and it's, you know, everyone's aware of it. Um, I'm sure there's a lot of dangers out there that if they actually got talked about, uh, everyone would be like freaking out. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. uh, Yeah. Yeah. I think that it's kind of a the case for what's going on. Right. Yeah, what's yeah. uh I think it's good in general this obviously for um us personally and our audiences looking at fall big game seasons. I don't foresee any cancellations or states doing any full stoppages of seasons or even restrictions to non residents. Like I think we have enough time between now and then and enough um of a recovery and progress that I think essentially fall hunting is going to be mostly normal, which is good, obviously. Yeah. Yeah. I would completely agree with that. I, I think, like I said, we're all just having new accepted risk that we're going to live with. And, um, they're going to have to, states are going to have to open up, you know, the economy and included in that is, is hunting and allow people to do it. And, um, we'll, I'm curious to see if there'll be, you know, are they going to do enough testing to like catch little flare ups? And then how do they react to that flare up? Say there's a, you know, Portland or Seattle has a big flare up. Do they just go in and shut down the city for two weeks? I go, I'm curious to see how that's going to be handled going forward. And then um, I guess along those lines, kind of is what happens with the, the big sporting events, you know, football games, and basketball games and uh, concerts. And, I, you know, those are big question marks. I, I highly doubt they um, exist in the next year or two in the, in the way that we knew them for sure. Yeah. I mean, I was even thinking of, it sounds like it's far away, but it's really not of for us. Like what, what does shows look like next show season, right? Like whether it be hunt expo or take your pick of there's no social distancing at those things, you know, and obviously you'd, (laughs) you'd assume that, uh, yeah, yeah, we'd assume in some ways that this will be recovered since then, but I think there's going to be pockets of it. Like you said, there's going to be continued levels of risk and all those types of big events. Um, God, think of the number of people at SHOT Show, even compared to Hunt Expo. Like, what what does that yeah. look like? Yeah. Yeah, that's uh, it's going to be interesting, man. Well, lots of question marks. I think 80% of life will return to normal and there's just going to be a 20% of things you used to do that you just don't do anymore, you know? Um, so yeah, well, I'm for sure. Uh, Let's get on to hunting stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So I was <laughs> yeah, just going to say, speaking of hunting, I'm for sure glad to be a hunter right now with some meat in the freezer. Cause one of the things I keep seeing news is about all the 
potential meat shortages and some of the meat uh, processing facilities struggling to remain open. And it's nice to know I don't have to deal with that as much as most folks. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We, uh, today on May 1st, this is like random, but kind of exciting as a Missouri resident, I can apply for an elk tag for the first time in my lifetime. Um, yeah, obviously elk were at, at one point, uh, um, all over the country for the most part and Missouri had them, um, you know, going back hundred plus years ago, um, they were here, they're a natural, um, natural species, but like in many places, they were um, hunted and pushed and didn't have really resident population. We did a restoration um, from Kentucky quite a few years back, and it's essentially got to the Missouri Department of Conservation's goals to open a hunting season. And there's going to be a whopping five tags in 2020. So my odds are fantastic to draw a Missouri elk tag. <laughs> I wouldn't be talking about it on the podcast. Man. You're going to get a bunch of people apply that shouldn't have. <laughs> I think most people, if they're interested, probably know. But if not, yeah, maybe I just screwed my chances. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's pretty big news. It's, yeah, it's like on the, obviously, if you're at all tuned into the Department of Conservation, which is basically our fishing game, that type of thing. It's, you know, there's press releases and a big hubbub about it, but it's uh, five permits, one of which is actually landowner uh, permits. So it's actually four general permits. Um, they're doing two um, nine-day portions. They're doing an archery portion in mid-October and then a firearms portion in mid-December. If you draw a tag... Um, you can hunt both of those. So they're not separate tags or separate permits. There's just two separate seasons, uh, two opportunities for any tag holder. Um, yeah, but it's a $10 application fee. And then if you draw, it's like a $50 for the permits, but it'll be interesting to see how that goes, man. That's awesome. Hopefully you draw, I'll come out and, uh, tag along with you on the elk hunt. Yeah. Well, if I do, hopefully I already have a couple elk in the freezer by that point since it's, uh, October and December, but yeah, it's a random, like kind of cool fact for today. Um, <laughs> I like it. Yeah. Let's get to, with this being the last TSS, uh, you know, the podcast isn't stopping. We don't want the listener questions to stop. We will continue to do, uh, as we always have full length episodes on Wednesday, we will continue to do Monday minute episodes, um, on Mondays, which are the shorter, more informal episodes, kind of a, basically a TSS, but on Mondays, weekly and so don't stop sending in questions or bringing up topics anything like that we'll continue to to answer those questions like we have been in these tss episodes we'll just essentially push that into that monday minute format um so not much will change on that fact it's just the the frequency of we won't have a tss um you know coming out multiple times a week we'll just have those monday minute episodes so we really do like through this whole time and these episodes appreciate you guys your interaction your questions your feedback it's been awesome so keep it up and we'll keep doing these through the monday minute but a question for today steve that came in and would be a fun one to chat through is how did you find your best spot was it through e-scouting was it from a tip from a fin friend or family member was it with help from a biologist or someone from fish and game was it complete random luck what are some stories about finding good hunting spots? I like it. Um, my One of my best deer spots, um, 
<laughs> as an overarching theme, um, some of my best spots are I got close to the area with Google Earth, and then I went to scout it, and the and the spot I had picked that I thought like, okay, this is the spot, uh, wasn't actually the spot, but the the other the the really good spot was really close by. Um, so one of these is uh, the deer spot that I've got, um, the place Jason and I went in last year, and and he killed that beautiful buck. Um, total, yeah, I went to it. Saw it on Google Earth, looked just awesome. Um, went in there, scouted, and basically it was a complete bust. Saw like a couple does, but I had uh, going back a couple TSSs, kind of talk about like that instinct, that hunting instinct. I just like I knew, like it was so like it was beautiful country, it was remote, like everything about it said there should be deer here. Um, so I think I did a, a full year went by. Um, you know, in scouting season. So it's next August. I went back into that same spot and, and turned up like a couple does and a couple small bucks, a little bit better, not great. Um, and, uh, and I was, I was super bummed, but I just had such like a, um, you know, I, I don't know how to describe it, but I was just like, I knew the spot had to be good. Just a gut feeling literally a whole nother year goes by and I, and I went back and scouted it one more time and it was just kind of kind of on a way. I wasn't going to do it, but I had like ran into an area that was close by, um, you know, five miles away. It was kind of a bust. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to check out that spot one last time. Went in there and found uh, just a gorgeous buck. It was like 180 something buck, just absolutely beautiful buck. Um, and then he and then he had some other ones with him. There were some nice deer. And then on the way back out so that that deer was like where on google earth i predicted a deer would be right on the way back out i stumbled on a deer and it like bounded over the edge of the mountain and i <laughs> i ended up like going off this mountain um and like side hilling into a different basin and i got to that basin it was just loaded with freaking deer just bucks everywhere there was like 12 deer in there or something like that and uh and i, I was so like i was so relieved and so frustrated because i'd been like three quarters of a mile away from where these bucks had been for three years, you know? Um, but I finally just, yeah. So it was kind of a, a, a luck and persistence that, that ended up finding that area. And to date that we've killed quite a few bucks off that mountain. Um, it's great, great huntable mountain, stockable, uh, just an awesome spot. Um, and, uh, yeah, so that's, yeah, that's my favorite deer spot. Favorite elk spot, um, that I've stumbled on. Gosh, usually it's all, like I could just start thinking about multiple spots where it, that all starts. It always, always starts with Google earth for me. Right. Uh, uh, you know, any scouting's done it at home and then I go in there. Um, and I've kind of, um, hinted at when we've done podcasts on e-scouting, things like that. At the end of the day, you just got to get in the country and get boots on the ground, um, and, and check out the country and, and cover as much as possible. Cause all my, all my favorite spots have to do with getting close to the area and then getting in there and finding out where the animals like actually like to live. You know, um, one of my better elk spots was a complete, uh, random, I, I was elk hunting, um, saw, uh, I had a backpacked in from this one spot and I could get up on this peak and see like five miles away. And I saw a herd of elk over there. Uh, and there was no way, and there was no elk around me and there was no way I could get over there. So I literally just had had, um, just a topo map in the truck, um, you know, with roads on it. And I basically hiked back out and 
started looking at roads and ways I could access the country. Uh, and it ended up being that you have to like hike out, drive like three hours around the mountains and come in from the other side. And then, and I came in from that way and, uh, and just landed right smack dab in the middle of tons of elk. And we still hunt that spot to this day. So, um, but that was again, boots on the ground, actually seeing animals and you just can't be afraid to, to cover country and put an effort to, to really find like the, the nooks and crannies that they like to live in. Yeah. When this, when this question came up, I mean, I can think of, um, different experiences I've had, different spots, different encounters, uh, different successes. But what also came up to me is like that whole idea that there is a magical spot. Um, because even, you know, what is a good spot for a year or two years or a few years? Does that like, how consistent is that? So, um, is it the spot or is it timing? Like even for your own experience, Steve, you, you mentioned that area and how you come back to hunt it, but what's been your experience with things changing over time, right? Like you go into a certain area and there's this pocket that you find and elk are heavy and activity's great. Maybe it's September and it's a rut fest, but you can't always count on going back there at the same time in the same place and getting that same type of experience. Yeah. You know, one thing I've found, this applies to deer and elk. Good country is good country. And no matter the year, outside of you know outside forces which would be uh hunting pressure wolves fires those areas stay good that you can always rely on them right like when you find a good spot year after year after year you can go in there and find animals i remember talking with uh russ meyer um and uh, he had a he had one of his favorite elk spots he basically said the same thing he's like there is always a big bull that lives in this little hole Every single year, he could not visit that place for five years. Is it something about uh, it just has all the right conditions, right? Enough security, water, food. Um, that there's just always a big bull there. It's like that. If there's a big bull in that country, he basically is like, this is my home, and and keeps all the other bulls out of it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I think this, you know, all the spots I can think of, um, they're just good consistently. I mean, every once in a while, you'll have a good day. You could have a good day hunting. Um, and you're not, you, I can think of one spot in particular, uh, I was elk hunting and we just, it was just an amazing day. There was just elk everywhere. But I think the reason that there were elk everywhere is they'd been all hunting pressure had pushed them into this pocket and we just happened to stumble on it. Um, so it wasn't a spot that they necessarily naturally wanted to be in. Um, but that's where I was kind of talking about those outside forces can kind of skew things sometimes, but given, given no hunting pressure, no animal pressure wolves basically um and and fires you know those those good spots are just always good you just count on them to to hold animals year in and year out yeah it'd be cool to and then obviously take that knowledge and you know one step i think gets overlooked and we've talked about this but is we talk about google earth or onyx or what have you like doing that preseason scouting looking at maps looking at terrain but when you find those spots to after that go back to Google Earth, go back to Onyx, whatever, and like dissect that and try to figure out, okay, what makes that spot a good spot? Like what's happened topographically or with cover or with pressure? Like what makes that spot a good spot? Because if you can kind of piece that together, then, um, you know, with Google Earth or what have you, it kind of equips you to then try and go find other spots that may have similar features again, be it terrain, be it cover structure, whatever, 
and kind of apply that same type of idea to a different area um, would be really helpful. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's something that, that I do. It's like the first thing I do when I get home from a scouting trip is go back and, and like draw my route through the whole country um, and just kind of look at it again with, with, you know, I had fresh eyes. I was just in it and see what it, you know, cause everything looks different, right? Like how it looks on Google earth. It never actually looks like when you get there in person. Um, and, uh, so just go back and that way you kind of have perspective of what to look for. It's, it's a great, uh, great tactic for sure. What's, uh, let's see another question that came through. I thought it'd be fun to talk about. Basically the short question is what is your best example of type two fun? Um, most listeners are probably aware of what type two fun is meaning, but basically it's the type of fun that is only fun afterwards. It sucks in the moment, but when you finish it, when you look back at it, uh, it was enjoyable um, in some way. <laughs> so crappy <laughs> conditions, hard hunts, hard hikes may not feel great at the time, but you look back at it and it's good memories and good times. And beyond the suck, you still want to go do it again. Mm-hmm. Um Man, there's there's a bunch of different things that come to mind for me, but is there one certain like example of that that sticks in your mind, Steve? Not a certain example. I the I guess when I'm hunting related, um, the type two fun for me historically has been the pack out. Um, like I loved uh, hated pack outs, but loved them when you got back to the truck. And then over the years, I've learned to like in the moment of the pack out, enjoy it. Um, and not, and not embrace the suck, but and like realize how fun this is and how awesome and how lucky I am. Um, and just like embrace the pack out, you know, and, and have fun with it. And, um, yeah, it's like a, it's a, just a mind mental game that you play with yourself, but you know, <laughs> you're, you've got 120 pounds on your back and you're coming off a mountain and you're slipping and sliding. And, and instead of like, ah, oh, this sucks, you know, F and this, uh, you just, like, uh, like this is awesome, man. I'm in this beautiful country. I've got a freaking you know, big old buck rack on my pack and tons of great meat and I'm hiking out and, and just enjoy it. You know, I I'd probably take more breaks on pack outs than I used to, unless time's an issue, but you know, hike a mile, sit down, uh, eat a snack, uh, rest on a log, you know, sit there for 10, 15 minutes, get up, hike another mile or two, do that same thing. Um, and just kind of take your time and enjoy that. So that definitely for me, like, uh, something that I just love to do. Like I, uh, you and I talked about doing a, a deer hunt where, uh, maybe we're going to the Frank church wilderness and like, I want to do something that's like just brutal, like total type two fun and go kill a buck. That's like 30, 40 miles back there and pack that sucker out. Cause it'd just be a, a horrible, awesome, <laughs> amazing experience, sure. you know? <laughs> um, so pack outs are definitely a big one. Uh, for me, the other things like the death hike, you know, I love doing that every single year. Uh, and then haven't done it. It's been quite a few years now, but mountain bike races, um, those are the other two that jump out immediately when I think about type two fun of, they really, really suck. Um, a race is, is a whole different kind of suck. Cause you don't get to, um, you know, be, imagine doing the hundred mile death hike, but like making it a competition, right? You know? <laughs> How much more that would suck when, you know, you're not taking breaks and resting and soaking it all in. It's just grind, 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 grind. Um, so those things for me are, they're fun and awesome. And I, we talked about it plenty of times on the podcast over the years of 
like how much you grow from those things. Um, just, you just become stronger, um, and not physically, but just, you know, hundred percent mentally, mm. um, but appreciate the small things I think. And yeah. Yeah. Highly encourage everybody to do it. Get, get your lazy ass off the couch and <laughs> go pick something that's really hard, really scary. Uh, I love that. Uh, Oh, who's the Navy SEAL guy we just had on, but his, his quote, Chad, of, right? Yeah. Chad, his quote of, um, true adventures when the, the most likely likely outcome is failure. And I think it's just awesome. You know, like yeah. again, just picking, picking a, a super long hike where it's like, I don't think I can do this. Most likely I'm not gonna be able to make it, you know, and, and push yourself all the way to that edge and come through it. It's, it's such an awesome experience. Yeah. hundred percent, man. Yeah. It's like you, you could pick death hikes and pack outs and, um, man, I even think of like the, the first elk, uh, that I packed out, you know, Jared and I just one trip that like six miles and we were young and didn't have experience and it, it sucked for all kinds of reasons and pack out since and trips. But, you know, I, when I thought about this too, it's even not the, cause that's immediately what I go to is like bad weather, or heavy packs or long hikes or whatever. But then I was even thinking about, um, like take our caribou hunt, for example, and a few things from that, that didn't even appear to be actually there's no fun about them so i'm hesitating to call this type two fun but like i guess there was so take like the just even the delays um mm. in getting up there not that this was fun but i guess it's more the perspective of learning from difficult moments um you know we flew through the night essentially and landed in the morning fully expecting to then go into the field and that was essentially a 24 plus hour delay you have zero control you're all excited for me it was my first alaska hunt like that was a bummer looking back at that now nothing was fun about that but i like learned from that experience um and then even thinking through the the times we had on that same trip of being stuck in the tent for 30 plus hours you're out there you want to be hunting uh, you want to be experiencing Alaska and instead you're in a tent for 30 plus hours. No part about that was necessarily fun. But then you look back at it and I'm like, well, yeah, it was kind of a little bit of fun. Right, we yeah. all would have rather been hunting. But to literally go, we are in the middle of nowhere experiencing this crazy storm. And at least we got some card games and food and, you know, a good group of guys to just hang out. Again, all of us would rather be hunting, rather experience in Alaska, but you look at as much of a bummer as that was like you look back at it and it's like you appreciate things i guess even though it's not what you expected it's not what you wanted but you have to like for me those were both lessons of learning to realize what you do and don't have control over um and if things don't go your way but you can't really control it you have to learn to just go with it and so maybe that's not a type two fun but for me that was also something that came to mind of just going with the suck when you can't control it um, is kind of a good lesson or something that came to mind for me. Yeah, absolutely. I think that, um, yeah, that whenever things go wrong, there's like better stories, better memories from it than everything's just smooth sailing, you know? Mm -hmm. um, but it's, it's sure nice when they, when you have beautiful weather and the hunting's awesome and everything goes according to plan. Uh, but, uh, yeah, you need a good, uh, good dose of both, you know, ideally. Yeah. Good hunts that go according to plan and hunts that just are complete train wrecks, but you definitely are going to remember those train wreck hunts for a lot, lot longer. Yeah. And you can appreciate <laughs> both different, right. but appreciate yeah. both. Cool. Um, ticks. 
what Ugh. are our thoughts on permethrin? Have we used it? Um, and any other advice for dealing with ticks? I think we both hate ticks. <laughs> uh, yeah, let's hit that with permethrin first. Is that something that you've used, Steve? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, I have no scientific data to back up that it works, but I think it works. Um, I usually just the only time I use it is spring bear season. Uh, I'll just, uh, yeah, Sawyer is the company that makes it, same company that makes the water filter. Um, and, uh, at least that's where I buy it from. Just treat my socks. Uh, I think you're supposed to do all your outer layers and not necessarily stuff that's next to skin, but I do do my socks. So spray your socks, spray my shoes, spray my pants. Uh, and I guess I spray my, like my shirt, um, whatever, you know. Um, and I usually, I don't know how bad that stuff is for clothes and if it washes out and what the, you know, I'm way more leery of chemicals than I used to be, you know, mm-hmm. um, all the stuff that causes cancer and crap nowadays that, you know, no one ever thought about t- 10, 15, 20 years ago. Um, but, uh, yeah, I spray it down and, and I've definitely been on bear hunts where I had my pants sprayed with it and, uh, whoever I was hunting with didn't. And they seem to pick up more ticks. You know, I wasn't tick proof by any means, but seemed to reduce it. So, yeah. Uh, but yeah, I don't go crazy. I don't spray my pa- I don't spray everything. I just kind of do my said my socks, my pants, and, and maybe the one shirt mm-hmm. um, that I'd probably most likely be hunting in. You know. So, yep. Yeah. Yeah. This time of year, I use it as well. Pretty much the same. Um, if I don't treat everything like my pants all together just make sure i hit like waistline and then the ankles you know kind of those quote-unquote entry points if you will um but i do think it works i've actually um this was years and years ago but we were camping and there was there was ticks really bad one weekend we were camping again and i was taking a hammock and i thought i'm gonna spray my hammock with permethrin um and what was funny is I didn't hang or I didn't spray the suspension like the straps. I just sprayed the body of the hammock. And I literally was laying there like midday just chilling and watched a tick crawl down the suspension line, get to the hammock fabric and like turn around and leave. So it's hmm. like a, a very crappy case of one, <laughs> but like yeah. non-scientific way of saying after that experience, I thought, yeah, I think permethrin's pretty good because literally it was on a surface without it, got to a surface with it, and then like was gone. Hmm. Um, N of one, so don't take that as science, but I thought that was interesting. But yeah, I've, I've noticed um, it being effective on clothing for sure. You know, part of this guy's question was, is it okay to use on all fabrics? What about tents? What about Nexopack? Um I don't have experience there. Uh, we don't want to play the what's safe and what's not. I would just say contact Sawyer about certain types of fabrics. I do, man, I have not looked at this because I just personally use it on um, clothing. But I do recall seeing some uh, some keeping away from certain types of fabrics um, with permethrin. Mm. So should have looked at that closer, but that'd be a good thing to look at if you are going to use it for sure. Yeah. Is there anything else you do, Steve? Any like strategies for ticks? Um, not really. Just check often, um, and and uh, avoid the brushy spots when I can. You know, yeah. sometimes you can't though. Like I, yeah, yeah, it's always just spring bear honey. Obviously, it's not an issue in September. Um, but uh, I don't remember how Jason and I were bear hunting one year, and it's just just you know it was a half mile long just brush patch where we just knew it's like the only way to 
get across and we're just like, oh man, we're just going to be covered in ticks. You know, uh, there's nothing you could do about it. You just busted through it. And then by the time we got to the other side, I think we each probably pulled 20 ticks off of our pants and packs and crap like that at the, on the other side of it. So, um, yeah, just be aware of it. You know, I think you just, they're paying the butt, man. I hate them. I'm more afraid. I think I told this to somebody that I'm more afraid of like tick than I am of like catching Lyme disease or something like that than I am of, uh, a bear attack or anything like that. You know what I mean? Uh, <laughs> I told that to somebody like, well, they were talking about packing a pistol for a hunt and for bear protection. I'm like, man, yeah. I'd, I'd be more for ticks than I'm a freaking a bear attack. Um, it's funny, it, <laughs> but I, yeah, I just hate the little buggers. So I'm so glad they're not around in the fall. I would, um, that would suck. So yeah. Um, yeah, at least here. And I think in the Eastern United States, it's a different story, but at least out here in the West, it's, um, yeah, I can only ever think of one or two ticks, you know, that you come across in September. I, I would like to know where the heck they go. I don't think they die off and disappear. They're just not as active. I don't know what the how that yeah. works. Do they go in the ground? I have no idea. But it's um, they're my arch nemesis for sure. They're out where I live now. They're uh, not bad for me, but my dog just gets absolutely covered in them. Uh, we did a hike like a week ago and basically went one day there was no ticks and the next day same hike she's like yeah i think i pulled 15 of them or something off they were crawling around on it right after the hike and um yeah i hate them yeah (laughs) (laughs) on from ticks let's get rid of the creep crawlies all right guy wrote in said i recently bought a slick 624 tripod from sns archery what tripod head would you suggest for that my primary use right now it will be running binoculars Awesome. Well, first of all, thanks for buying a tripod from us. Um, on the head, with just binoculars, you're not as critical as, just because they're not as heavy uh, and the weight's really well balanced. It's basically directly above the head. Uh, so it's not as critical to have a super smooth pan head. Uh, you get away with something cheaper if you wanted to. Um, on With S&S, we've, we've basically narrowed it down to two tripod heads. We have the um, Sure VA5, and it's like, it's a really great head, super smooth, um, not cheap. I think it's like 150 bucks. Um, you know, it's right around a pound, maybe a touch over in weight. But again, with a spotting scope, and if you're doing a lot of glassing, having a super smooth pan and tilt uh, just pays dividends. You talk about like eye fatigue and uh, shake in the scope and stuff like that. Um, a good head is is um, absolutely worth its weight. So, um, and the cost. For binos, though, yeah, you could get away with a lot more. I still have um, – we don't sell them anymore, and I don't know if they – got my computer right here in front of me. Um, I'll give him one recommendation I'm personally using um, if they still make it. Vanguard PH113, no longer available. Well, never mind. That <laughs> <laughs> was a good head. I, I've got, uh, yeah, it's Vanguard PH113. It's a head I currently have that I'll run because uh, I can get it um, super light. Like I removed the handle from it, put a little carbon rod in there, and it's like 12 ounces or something like that. Um, and it's a good head for um, for my binos and then works pretty well with that smaller Koa 55. If, if I was going to run a bigger spotter on it, it doesn't quite uh, work that well. So um, I don't know. What head do you uh, run on your tripod at the moment, Mark? Um with binos alone, I've actually, uh, the one that comes with, why am I blanking? Oh, the one that came with my ProMaster. I've actually, it's just that ball head, but for binos, oh, um, works I found fine. that it works yeah. just fine. Yeah. So 
Um, again, different story if you're running a bigger spotter or something like that, but um, for binos specifically, that one actually works fairly well. Yeah. Yeah, I would just try, um, you know, pick one up. Uh, I don't know if during this coronavirus stuff, you can just go to a camera store, try them out. But yeah, just look for something that's smooth. Um, one thing you'll catch on the cheaper ones, sometimes they're super smooth when it's warm outside, but then it gets cold and uh, the oils and grease that they use inside of it start to kind of gunk up and they don't move as freely. Uh, so you'll notice that in the, in the mornings your your head is kind of sticky. Um, but uh, yeah, I've never, I need to play with some more ball heads. I haven't revisited them a long time. I think for a binocular setup with the right, you know, a good quality head, you could probably get away with it performing fairly well for you. Um, but, uh, yeah. Good question on bear hunting. Um, this guy's going on his very first bear hunt and where he's hunting, it's illegal to hunt a sow with cubs. So his question is, how do you identify if a bear has cubs? Will the cubs always be in close proximity? Man, I don't, that's a, I don't think I have any other super helpful tips other than just sit back and watch. Um, you know, you need to, if I was hunting i'd probably watch for a good 30 minutes um maybe pay attention to the 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 bears kind of are they constantly like looking back in the bush you know uh throughout there in a, in a meadow feeding um they kind of checking back to see if you know you can kind of get an idea of what they're doing there um but i can think of plenty of times i've seen just a, a sow out there just feeding away munching away and uh, you know, you're looking at two miles through the spine scope. You can't tell if it's a sow or a boar. And then all of a sudden a couple of cubs pop out. So, um, even I remember doing a stock where it got all the way, you know, watched it for a while, saw nothing, got all the way close and bam, there's freaking a uh, couple of cubs that popped out. So, uh, I don't know. I don't have any super helpful tips there other than just, you gotta be patient. You can't just see a bear and pull the rifle up and shoot, you know, um, you just gotta, gotta sit back and watch and, um, that, you know, and probably just, it's going to be some judgment there of, you know, you see a bear by itself and the country is like super open, like, okay, clearly there's no cubs around. Or if it's super brushy, you probably need to, you know, watch for another 10, 15, 20 minutes longer than you, than you think you need to just because it'd be super easy for something, you know, for a cub to be hiding. But yeah, yeah, cool. I don't know. Maybe, maybe we get another bear expert on there. I don't know if there's some behavior that they have when there's cubs around them that you could pick up on. And even then, I wonder if it's relatively subtle, this guy being a newer hunter, is that even something you can't identify? Yeah. But I think, like you said, just time and trying to um, look at that basic behavior of, like you said, turned around, looking for things would would be the best. We had a couple follow-ups. One is on the, the... when I was talking the other day about dehydrating and I was mentioning that I just eyed it basically on how much water to use, heard from quite a few guys that were much more scientific than that, <laughs> which there are ways to do it. Essentially, for guys who might be interested and don't want to just wing it like I do, you can take um, a meal that's not dehydrated and basically take that serving portion and weigh it and then take that same portion dehydrate it and then look at the weight difference once it is dehydrated Um, and water weights uh, of ounces don't equate to fluid ounces of water but it is very close so you can for example say okay this lost 10 ounces in weight I need roughly 10 ounces of water Um, so that is a a method that I um, probably should have shared it's something I've done in the past but um, just something to throw out there for guys who might be interested in dehydrating their meals that you can 
use that approach to get a much more scientific um, look at the meal. Again, I just tend to eyeball it because I don't know if it's because feel from doing it or what, but I just don't uh, take that time anymore. The other one follow-up from listeners was on the guy with the arrow setup who quote-unquote wanted it all, which we just talked Mm. about, Steve. Um, He had a very similar um, specs in terms of his draw, what he was looking for with total arrow weight. And, you know, as we mentioned, Steve, one of the options would be to go with a lighter weight arrow just overall um, for this guy. And that would um, be beneficial. Essentially, this guy who wrote in was saying he went to the Easton Hex. Um, He was able to get a total weight under 500 grains with everything else that that other guy was asking for. So higher FOC, he was at like 1314. Um, To do that high FOC, he was running a 260 spine, which is a lot of, you know, it's a lot of spine. We had talked previously about this guy was at 300. I wanted to mention that for guys who are newer, as you add weight to the points, whether that's inserts, outserts, a larger head, that does affect spine greatly. So just make sure and consider that. So for this example, the guy was running the Easton Hex, which is a lightweight carbon shaft with a 75 grain brass insert. And because he added so much weight up front, he had to go from a 300 spine to the 260 spine. But long story short, he was able to achieve achieve all that and be under 500 grains. So again, that's just a, a good example from you guys, from the listeners of um, looking at things, breaking it down and finding solutions, which is awesome. Um, yeah, Steve, that's a, that's a good wrap on this TSS. Like we said, it's kind of the, the last one, which feels weird, but essentially these will keep going, just move into that Monday minute format. So looking forward to it, man. Yeah, no, it's been fun, man. It's, um, been, uh, obviously you're always working from home, but I'm not. And so might as well, uh, take advantage of what we could do from home and doing these TSSs where it was a great, great way to, you know, uh, just be more casual about it and answer questions and give some people content if they were sitting at home bored and uh, yeah, looking forward to getting back to business as usual and hopefully uh, all the stuff's in the past here as we move on to the summer and see what happens. Yeah, I like it. Guys, thanks for tuning in. As always, send us those questions, topics, anything like that. We'll tackle it on a upcoming Monday minute and you can just contact us via email to podcast at xomountaingear.com. Thanks for tuning in not only today, but through all these TSS episodes. We'll talk to you soon.